As you pack your bag for the coast or cabin in the hills, it's time to leave the urban world behind. It's not just a matter of swapping proper shoes for espadrilles or a clutch of breezy, unstructured linens. This episode ushers in a change of perspective. It's a dive into a tumultuous ocean, a dose of that hazy abandon you feel after a day on a sunny, sandy beach, and a reflection on the essence of holiday style. We'll unpack the history of unwinding on the French Riviera with a review of a new book of photography that captures the stiff, jacketed beach strolls of the 19th century, the heady, scantily clad glamour of its mid-century heyday, and the brash, glitzy ultra-ego captured by the exacting lens of Helmut Newton and Martin Parr. We'll look at a brave and brilliant group of pro-surfers whose fight for recognition and fair treatment is documented in a film, Girls Can't Surf. We'll review a modern take on the brooding Chekhov play The Seagull and we'll hear an audio essay on the joys of mooching around empty city streets in the dog days of summer. I'm your host Sophie Grove and this is Confect Corner. Coco Chanel obviously was an incredibly influential figure at this time as well. She holidayed down there, she went down on her lover's yacht, the Duke of Westminster and it was her that was thought to start the fashion for sunbathing and for bronzed bodies which, you know, in the Victorian era was an anathema. It takes about eight to ten hours to make one bag because they collect the reeds in the fields in Alentejo, they take it back, they wash it, they let them dry in the sun, then they apply the organic dyes, and then after it's dyed, then they weave it, and then the last bit is that they put all the pieces together, and then there's an old guy doing the handle. I'd take an empty Venice over Oxford Street any dawn, but my appreciation of London, a city I've lived in all my life, is enhanced when it becomes a quieter, less purposeful place. Welcome to Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, here in London, and as usual, I'm joined by Julian DeBias and Confect style director Marcella Palak. But this month we have a little bit of a twist. They are both joining me from our studio in Zurich and I'm here solo in London. Hello, you both. Grüezi. Hello, Sophie. Grüezi, it's called, my dear. Gillian, <laughs> getting some language some tips language. already, I see. <laughs> yes, uh, Marcella is taking me under her wing for uh, Summer Life in Zurich, which starts with how to pronounce Grüezi. <laughs> and then continues to the body, I hear. Directly. Yes. I've never actually been swimming in the lake here in Zurich. So that is all going to change with, I think, Marcella pushing me in (laughs) to make sure I don't (laughs) avoid it and steer myself to the bar instead and get myself a rose. Well, I think you can do both. There's the glory of the Bardies in Switzerland. It's not like in Britain where they ban alcohol at the door. You'd practically frog marched to the exit (laughs) if you took out a rose over here. Um, And it's very liberal and very lovely. Lots of stripes. Oh, well, we will toast you, Sophie. Yes. Thank you. Well, as always, we like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. So, Gillian, what do you have for us this month? Well, I have an amazing opera come installation that is perfectly fitting for this hot summer. It's called Sand and Sea. And some people may remember it. It was the Lithuanian entry in the 2019 Venice Biennale. And it's now gone on tour because it was so exceptional. It won the Golden Lion in Venice and now it's doing a little bit of a global tour. I caught it in London. And what it is, they have recreated a beach 
and the cast is peopled with everyday characters that would literally people a beach from children running in the sand, dogs, lovers, elderly gentlemen. And an opera plays out where you, the audience, from above, from a gallery, are wires on this everyday scene of beach life. And what starts rather banally turns into this kind of very thought-provoking contemplation on actually climate change when people start questioning the nature and where things are pointing towards. But it is the most perfect example of people watching in voyeurism that then I found was replicated a week later when I was in Ibiza and was looking down from my balcony on the beach. I can't recommend it more highly. So people should check it out when they're on tour. It's very interesting because I've heard people talking about it quite a bit in London. It's really struck a chord. But I think it also reminds you that the beach has this sense of it can be heaven and it can be hell in some senses. You know, if you look at it from a different perspective, it's leisure and it's wonderful sun, but then it can turn pretty quickly. And I think that it's so ambivalent and so thought-provoking that I now have to go and see it too. <laughs> well, totally. And it's very Fellini-esque, the beach. Like, any time you are on a beach in summer, on a summer holiday, whether it's Brighton Beach or whether it's in Mallorca, it is Fellini-esque, you know, from the gross pot bellies to, you know, the extreme bosoms and polka-dotted bathing suits. There's something that is quite caricature and extreme, isn't there? Well, more beaching later, I promise. But Marcella, what about you? What have you been thinking about this month? Yeah, I'm hiking, <laughs> not at the beach, I'm in the mountains. And I have a pop-up store in the mountains. So, for example, after a, a day-long hike in the Upper Engadine, the Super Mountain Market is a refreshing destination. They have excellent iced coffee, delicious cakes. It's a place where you bump into nice people, not wearing hiking shoes, but driving chic cars. And you won't leave with empty hands, probably. It's a seasonal shop. It's a pop-up store in winter or in summer. But it's also a gallery and cafe, and it's situated in the beautiful Forum Paracelsus in St. Moritz downtown, so in St. Moritz Bad. And this forum was built actually in 1866, so it's a beautiful house. And you can discover there also the history of the mineral springs in St. Moritz and even taste uh, a bit of this acid water. But, of course, then you continue to the shop and there you find the regional craft, cool fashion labels, books, just great finds. And probably the mountain air brings you to buy something of it. I think it's really the height because you will buy something. And now there is also a new cafe that just opened in St. Moritz Dorf, so uptown, just opposite of the Jeromini fish shop. So you can't miss it when you are in St. Moritz. And I should ask you, Marcella, what did you buy? I bought some, sounds a little bit strange, but actually it's red silk socks, but it's from a label. The label is producing for the Pope in Rome. So it's an excellent quality and it's something very special, yeah. The history is as nice as the socks. I think if there's one person that can pull off red silk socks, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Sophie? Well, in contrast, I've been on the east coast of the UK in Norfolk and I've been swimming 
with seals. I got up early. I was my brother's living right next to the beach, and I joined his swim club, and we powered down the coast. And some beautiful grey seals just popped up, and it was very remarkable because they have these huge eyes and long eyelashes and kind of almost smiles on their faces. <laughs> and even though they're huge mammals, which would usually alarm me quite a bit, it was oddly kind of companionable just to be there with them. <laughs> The lovely thing was we were on the coast with a big group of people, a little two-month-old baby, my goddaughter, but also two sort of nonagenarians who my great-aunts who were land girls in the war. And I really had this wonderful moment of the beach, that culture we're talking about, but it, as a great leveller, the full spectrum of human life, every single one of us just gloriously enjoying the deck chairs and the ice creams and the brass band and all the, the kind of quintessentially English coastal activities and I, I did have that moment of feeling maybe not Fellini-esque but um, something similar. <laughs> <laughs> the British seaside is I think distinct all on its own isn't it Sophie? It is and it, it is everyone you know the full spectrum of, of age and demographic and I think that's why it's such a wonderful thing to have as a amenity but it was actually beautiful and the beach huts I've got my eye on I was looking at these families making tea on the beach like just after breakfast and then plunging into the sea and I thought what could be more British and I want one (laughs) now there are fewer things that can be equated with summer than spending a few days in the French Riviera This once sleepy coast with its fishing villages became a hotbed of culture over the years, attracting the likes of artists, intellectuals and bon vivants. This legacy can be found in a new photography book titled Light on the Riviera by Genevieve Jeanvin and Sophie Wright. In it, they chronicle the Côte d'Azur by decade in a spectacular visual homage to this legendary region. Earlier, I had the chance to catch up with co-author Sophie Wright, who's also the executive director of Photographiska in New York. Sophie started by telling me about the way in which the book mirrors the history of the coast and of leisure, and when that shift started to happen. So what happened was in the sort of turn of the century, the incomers were known as the Ivernal. They wintered there, so they escaped the fog and rubbish weather in the north and came down to the south coast for the warmer, barmier air. People convalesced down there, but they also holidayed. And so in a way, you see a lot of these kind of evergreen gardens that were planted at that time. And they were planted because the Brits wanted to have green throughout the winter season. Then what happened is really it was the First World War swept away the sort of aristocracy. And the 20s heralded a completely new era of fast new money and the Americans arrived. Essentially, uh, those beautiful Artigue images really sort of sum up that period. You had, for example, the Murphys, a wealthy American couple who in 1920 holidayed on the Cap d'Antibes. And the year afterwards, they rented out a hotel that had been known only for winter stays the Hotel de Cap Eden Rock, which is now an incredibly famous place to go. And they booked it out in the summer and they had guests like F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda and Picasso. And Coco Chanel, obviously, was an incredibly influential figure at this time as well. She holidayed down there. She went down on her lover's yacht, the Duke of Westminster. And it was her that was thought to start the fashion for sunbathing and for bronzed bodies, which, you know, in the Victorian era was an anathema. 
So the work that Lartigue did there in the 20s really sums up this very outdoorsy, elegant 1920s culture of beautiful people in fast living. It's amazing to see the influx of this kind of bohemian crowd that came. I mean, there's Lasselo Maholinage with his very constructivist images, but then a whole cohort of the Surrealists and Roland Penrose who were taking very iconic pictures that really sum up that sense of radical, incredible liberation in a sense. The kind of Surrealist picnic with you know, topless women lounging is always springs to mind as that moment of true summer liberation and kind of bohemians. But tell me about that era and how that kind of became sort of a defining, almost aesthetic for the region for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be said that interwar period was really the golden era of the Riviera. A lot of my favourite pictures actually come from that period. You had, obviously, Lartigue in the 20s. He actually lost a lot of his family money. He was actually from one of the wealthiest families in France, who's brought up in a very privileged background and was actually an extremely good and gifted photographer as a child because he had access to all the latest cameras. In 29, he lost his money. He was working, actually making his money by working on films. Nice had a burgeoning film industry and film studios. And his photography wasn't really discovered until much later. In the 30s, uh, in 1936, in fact, the Front Populaire, the government of France at that time, announced the two-week paid holiday for workers and many flooded to the beaches in the summertime. And 1937 is the time that you're referring to the um, gathering hosted by Dora Maar and Picasso at the Hotel Vast Horizon in Mougins, where there was an extraordinary group of friends, André Breton and his partner, Man Ray and his mistress, Addy, Paul and Nigel Ward, Roland Penrose and Lee Miller. And I, such an explosion of creativity, of art, of holiday snaps, really. But then also amazing photographs by Lee Miller, her take on the Dejeuner Sur l'Herbe. So, yes, and there was also, it has to be said, architecture isn't one of those things that that coastline is known for. It was very frivolous. And I think as a result, a lot of the architecture that was built there was quite sort of Italianate and Baroque. But there is a beautiful or there was a beautiful villa in here that was built by Marie-Louis and Charles de Noé. And they were like many very wealthy Parisians. They summered down on the coast and hosted, again, groups of extremely well-known artists, André Breton, Dali, Jean Cocteau, Giacometti. So there were always these kind of amazing house parties and gatherings of the great and the good down there. And in a way, that kind of set the scene. There were artists, in fact, that actually made their home there. Matisse is one of them, the famous quote that he said, everything was fake, absurd, amazing and delicious. And I think we should talk about the light because it was the light that obviously is a central part for both artists and photographers down there. Brack and Cezanne were inspired by the strong sunlight and it could have been said to, you know, have fed into a lot of modernist painting, in fact, in that region. I love this idea, fake, absurd, amazing, delicious, because I've just been to Saint-Tropez and it's still all those things. And I think the kind of latter part of this beautiful book it sort of gives us a glimpse of some of that kind of, I don't know, the brashness, the opulence. This place has become just so multifaceted, but in some ways a little bit grotesque. It has moments of pure glamour, but then also a sort of like fairly seedy side as well. I wonder whether you could talk me through that kind of episode on the Côte d'Azur. 
I think, you know, again, a war, uh, Second World War marked a sea change for the region. In 1946, the Cannes Film Festival finally launched. It had been delayed by the war. It had originally been scheduled for 1939. And with that came glamour and Hollywood descending on the region. You have Grace Kelly marrying into the royalty, Prince Rainier of Monaco in 1956. You know, the money of the South also attracted a lot of crime and a lot of speculation. So along with all this celebrity in the sort of 50s, you know, there's always people coming to take advantage of the situation. I think development, you know, has been rampant along the coast and kind of unchecked. And what drew people there was its beautiful landscape and it's sort of untouched, which became very, very built up. And I think that's how we know it now. People sort of fled a little bit up into the hills for a bit more sort of peace and quiet. But, you know, it still drew and still does draw a lot of glamorous people. I think that what you see in the sort of 1950s post, the kind of Edward Quinn era of Grace Kelly, Bridget Bardo, she obviously in the film by Roger Vadim and God Created Woman in a way that turned Saint-Tropez from a fishing village into a, a very famous fashionable resort. These things were happening quite quickly. And you see sort of a little bit, I guess, in later work by Elliot Erwitt, a little bit more of a tongue-in-cheek kind of look at the sort of fast set on the beach. You know, it became a much more mass tourism area. I remember going to Cannes myself, my family being sadly disappointed by just how many people were on the beach. The whole sort of tone changed, you know, from this kind of quite privileged a few to mass tourism, essentially. And it's interesting uh, how, you know, the Helmut Newton images in this book, which are very striking Amazonian models in the 90s, but there's a real sense that he sums up that money and that glamour, but the kind of, you know, the vestiges also of the 50s and the swooning, beautiful images of Bardot that have become a myth in a way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Helmut Newton's really comes out of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. His work has got more hard edged, I think, you know, it revels in these Amazonian sort of female bodies. And he was born in Berlin, moved to Australia, where he met his wife, June Alice Springs, and they'd been sort of holidaying on the South Coast since the 50s, 60s. And essentially moved to Monaco in 1981. He loved swimming. He always loved swimming. And and I think he really enjoyed being by the sea. And, but, you know, Monaco is a wonderful backdrop. It's kind of hard surfaces and glittering pools. And yeah, as you say, the brash opulence of it was a great sort of backdrop to his sort of risque scenarios that he sort of cooked up for his, his models women such as Cindy Crawford and Bridget Nilsson, Paloma Picasso. It's still very glamorous, but it's this kind of slightly hard-edged glamour. And then you move from that into the sort of era of Martin Parr in the 1990s, completely different vision. It's more of a kind of tongue-in-cheek look at the British abroad. A few more inflatables and little (laughs) dogs. And and lines and... (laughs) And lots of sun cream, you know, he... Questionable swimwear. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He follows in the tradition of British documentary photographers who have adored the seaside because it is this melting pot of different people from different backgrounds. So Tony Ray Jones on, really. And in Nice, he sort of is exploring the sort of extremities of that. It's very interesting in your introduction how you say, actually, 
Martin Parr's sort of accession into Magnum was, you know, questioned by Henri Cartier-Bresson, who said, this man is not coming anywhere near our hallowed institution. (laughs) And you can look at some of his images and see why those two generations were clashing. Yes, absolutely. It's a very different era. Martin actually started off in black and white photography when he was working in Yorkshire. That was where he began. And that sort of the era is probably, if you see it against the sort of earlier generations of Magnum, a bit more akin to their approach. But he really made his name when he moved into colour and has sort of worked in it ever since. Martin loves that story, of course. He's happy to sort of repeat it. And I mean, he came into Magnum at a time where also it wasn't just him, it was people like Harry Greert and other photographers also working in colour. Previous to that, colour had been something that many of them had sort of sniffed at, but had worked in, in fact, because a lot of the weekend supplements sort of expected it. Sunday Times, places like that, you know, they would often require the photographers to work in colour because they were now, of course, competing against television. So colour was an essential in terms terms of garnering attention. But yes, Martin uses colour and very rich, saturated colour, of course, to really sort of revel in the sort of, I guess, the mass kind of tourism side of the Riviera. Sophie, thank you so much. A beautiful, beautiful book and wonderful to just have that window into the beauty and light of the Riviera from my London studio. (laughs) Oh, and what a gorgeous book of photographs. Marcella, what does the Riviera evoke to you? Well, first of all, a little bit an old school picture. I see Grace Kelly in a buttery yellow bathrobe, turban, matching sunglasses and matching towel. I'm thinking on To Catch a Thief with Cary Grant because I think there we have a full spectrum of beautiful, amazing beach outfits that don't exist anymore today and which are just wonderful to watch. For men or for women? For women, but men as well. <laughs> I mean, Gary Grant had his striped T-shirts, little scarf and so chic sunglasses. But of course, I'm watching first women to be inspired. I mean, that film is also included in the book and it, it is just that moment of just pure glamour. It's something that Sophie touched on, which is, you know, this idea of crime and the opulence of the Riviera, but also this kind of slightly darker side. Obviously, the most beautiful film which (laughs) I actually am very inspired by some of Cary Grant's outfits too for myself. (laughs) Certainly the Breton stripes, the way he pulls them off, and the little bandana. (laughs) Even in his moments, kind of like capering across the roofs of of Cannes. (laughs) Gillian, what's the iconic image of the Riviera for you? I'm very nostalgic. I'm so, so nostalgic, which is why this book struck a chord. So I tend to love going to old second-hand shops and markets and looking through their shoe boxes full of old postcards. I love postcards. I've always loved postcards. And particularly the older ones you find where you find these pretty vintage scenes of what life was in the heyday of the Riviera. And the bonus is not only do you get gorgeous archive photographs for like a euro, but then you get the messages if you're lucky on the back in French or in English about sort of life on the Riviera. You know, it could just be a couple of lines about where people got their ice cream or what they did in the day, which to me is equally special to the wonderful photograph on the front. I just adore that. Well, thank you both. Light on the Riviera is published by Tenoy's Books and is out now.
Now let's stay at the beach and trade the glamour of the chic striped swimsuit with a more practical and bulkier item, the wetsuit. We wanted to find out more about the slippery history of women's equality in one particular sport. Comfex Sophie Monaghan-Coons took a dive into the waves and sent us this report. The promise of pro surfing was born right when I'm just starting to compete. There was this lifestyle looming and like it was going to be massive. The tour went for eight or nine events. We started in Australia, I think, went to California, Japan, Hawaii and France. Being a female pro surfer in the 1980s undoubtedly sounds like one of the coolest gigs going. Travelling to stunning, sunny beaches around the world and spending your days doing what you love, catching waves in clear blue ocean. Well, for me, because I always dealt with a lot of health issues, it was a real escape from pain because, you know, being in the water and being able to just completely occupy my mind with something else and just the beauty of it. Like, you know, you go in the surf and to have a dolphin come right next to you is just such an amazing feeling. And I was right into fishing as well and you're surrounded by fish and I was just surrounded by something I really loved. That's the voice of Pauline Menza, one of the women featured in a new documentary, Girls Can't Surf, which chronicles the obstacles women faced in the sport in the 1980s and the impressive lengths women went to fight back against inequality. Surfing as a professional and as a woman wasn't necessarily the breezy dream that it sounds like it should have been. It was very different to what it is today. I think we all appreciate now like how much particularly women's sport is changing, you know, let's say over the last five to 10 years. And if you rewind back to the 1980s within surfing culture, well, that was the beginning of this thing called the Association of Surfing Professionals, the ASP. It was kind of like this counterculture sport trying to organize itself into a legitimate international tour that's a little bit pretty similarly modelled to the tennis tour, except that it was run by pretty loose people. (laughs) And, you know, even the surfing brands were a big thing behind this administration of it as a sport. And so the people that started the brands were surfers and the people that started the sport were surfers. They weren't necessarily sports administrators or or anything like that. So there was kind of like this really loose beginning to it as a professional sport, which was a good and a bad thing, I think. I think you could say that part of surfing's beautiful, unique DNA is the fact that it did start that way. But then also, as it started, it was started very much as a boys club. So women were already on the back foot in that regard which wasn't necessarily true in the 60s and 70s. Things really changed in the 80s, I think, and you can see it in the film where it was sort of one of those generations where, you know, you're coming into Gordon Gecko and Wall Street and all of those types of things and this really kind of effusive, bold, you know, let's take the world by storm kind of attitude that the men had. And it's fair to say that the women got sidelined in that process, both institutionally but then also culturally because you're talking about a sport that really was quite sexist 
in itself. It was celebrating the kind of golden god male aspect of surfing. And so that came along with a lot of kind of sexist baggage as well that the women had to deal with when they were trying to just sort of become athletes. Christopher Nelius is the film's director. He was intrigued by the stories he heard from the women who came up into the sport during the 80s. Outrageous stories like bikini contests being run on the beach at the same time as the women's surfing competition was held in the water. Or the repeated demand on women to go and surf in the worst waves, followed by making a point of how this didn't make for good entertainment. Now, I don't want to go, go in and say something that will put shit on them. I think there's some really good women surfers, but they'll never get close to the men. Top surfer from any beach could defeat any women that I've ever seen. Uh... Pauline was one of the driving forces to improve the sport, not just for herself, but for all the women. She staged a protest encouraging them not to surf in poor waves. So in the movies, the first time that we actually got all the girls to agree, because what would happen was... I tried to do it quite a number of times, but then, for instance, you know, if there was a big sponsor of the event and then one of those girls happened to be sponsored by them, they didn't want to go out, but their sponsors made them. They'd say, if you don't go out, you're not going to be sponsored anymore. And so that kind of thing happened a fair few times. But then finally in South Africa, everyone's like, yeah, let's just not paddle out. And it wasn't really about being rebels or anything like that. I felt at the time it was just there was no waves and we'll stick to death of getting thrown out. You know, they're going, oh, it's no good. We'll stop the men now and put the women on. You know, I said, what are they going to do? Like they can't make us go out. At the time we were worried about getting fined because we're, you know, not doing what we're meant to do. But, um, you know, on the other hand, I'm just like, we just need to stick up for ourselves. The waves were on the rocks. So, we would have been rock hopping. <laughs> Pauline's actions helped spur a movement alongside other changes within the sport which pushed surfing to become more of an equal profession. And pro surfing still struggles with this. Only in 2019 was the prize money for the World Surf League's Championship Tour equal for the men and women competing. Even if this is dishearteningly recent, there's something about the image of the 1980s surf community and the rebellion of those captured in Girls Can't Surf that continues to feel special. For Confect, I'm Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Thank you very much to Sophie. Gillian and Marcella, have either of you ever tried to surf? I haven't tried to surf. I did try and water ski, and it's very difficult. I thought it might be a bit like skiing on snow, which I'm not an expert. But I love the idea of water skiing. Every time I watch it and I see these people sort of glide across the top of the water, like literally walking on water, except more sort of dancing on water, I just am very, very envious. But I have to say, when I was pulled along on the beautiful motorboat, I kind of just kept on plunging in after like a second or two. So it was not a great success, and now I'm a spectator tater water ski sport watcher i'm an observer too because i i see those but this is even more dangerous i think those kite surfers you know in the mountain lakes it looks so amazing but they are so fast and they are jumping up into the air i think about eight meters 
coming down and I would never ever dare to do such a sport but I could watch them half an afternoon it looks so amazing combining flying with surfing and this in the mountains it seems to be paradise what about you Sophie are you a water sports expert well I did surf a little bit I always go on holiday to Cap Ferret in the southwest of France which is a big surf place and I had some lessons it is punishing and I mean this is why the report we just listened to is so interesting because it takes so much discipline and physical strength to get up on the board but once you do there's a sense of power and freedom which is very very addictive but I think you have to (laughs) danger these waves they're dangerous so it's the fear but I suppose (laughs) that helps the performance but that's why it's spiritual because there is such a sense of the ocean and the power of the ocean and the waves these days I tend to just swim in the waves and I I like (laughs) catching waves with my body and just going 5,000 miles an hour to the edge of the water and (laughs) I feel a bit more like a seal but I'll get back on the board at some of these days I think (laughs) well Gillian Marcella thank you so much for the moment coming up a night at the Harold Pinter Theatre in London the importance of working with local artisans and we muse on the dog days of summer you're listening to Confect Corner This is Confect Corner and I'm Sophie Grove in London. Next up, we make our way to Portugal to hear how the country's landscape and traditional crafts have inspired one French woman to work with local artisans to make beautiful summer bags and dresses. Confect Skylots reports from Lisbon. The reason why my husband and I decided to move here is because we thought that Portugal was give like a kind of a roughness, you know, like the the water is super cold. You can find amazing places where there's no one there. It feels like bruto, like rough. That's Odile Armand. Although originally from France, Odile spent most of her life abroad, living in both Thailand and Japan, and about four years ago, choosing to settle in Portugal. When I met her in a square in Lisbon on a sweltering summer day, the country was showing just that roughness that she's talking about, with temperatures soaring well above the 30 degrees Celsius. That's what I like. It's like really like a jewel, you know, in the middle of a big ocean. I don't know. It's, I just love it. I mean, the colors, the skies, the greens. When you go to Alentejo, it's all about, I mean, right now it's completely yellow because it's so dry. You go to Douro Valley and it's all about the vines and the greens. Uh, you go to the beach, it's all about the blues. You, you look at the waters, it's like all the, from turquoise to uh, cobalt blues. So it's just like, yeah, it's very inspiring. Although Odile's background was international business, Portugal's landscapes, colors and textures inspired her on an altogether different path. I had the chance to uh, meet a lot of artisans and crafters from Portugal. And after a while, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. They have amazing skills, but sometimes the end product is a bit outdated. It's not really super, super modern, not contemporary. So I met an amazing atelier in the north of Portugal doing handwoven carpets. And I decided to use this fabric and to do cushion covers. These cushions would mark the beginning of Odile Collective a brand that takes the material and craftsman heritage of Portugal to make elegant pieces of design. 
and then I moved to the baskets and then I moved also to fashion where I developed like a spa wear collection like a one size only with only organic fabrics and very chill very easy going you know to relax at the beach or at the pool and then I created like a year ago a resort collection which is a bit more fashion with big prints I just love the tiles in Lisbon, so I took the inspiration from these tiles, but I revisited them with a more uh, modern feel. Although the designs are modern, they don't mask the roughness of the materials that they come from. Odile's wool cushion covers, for instance, are woven to feature a single stripe pattern down the middle and come in combinations of elegant colors such as deep blue, beige, and cream. The design might be classic, but the wool retains a raw, bumpy sort of feel. The reed, that tall, grass-like plant that's found everywhere in the Portuguese countryside, is skillfully hand-woven in different shaped bags with varying colorful patterns. But none are overly polished or finished. They retain the charm of the landscape and cast the minds to long, warm days at the beach or countryside picnics. It takes about eight to ten hours to make one bag because they collect the reeds in the uh, in the fields in Alentejo. They take it back, they wash it, they let them dry in the sun, then they apply the organic dyes. So that's why if you leave the bag in the sun, the colors may fade a bit. Also because we don't want to apply a varnish because it's glossy and I don't like it. And so we just leave it natural. And then after it's dyed, then they weave it. And then the last bit is that they put all the pieces together and then there's an old guy doing the handle. He's just like on a little stool and doing his handles. It's really cute. And then we send it to another atelier where they add the leather. So the whole process is really, really long. And for instance, it takes like an hour to weave one meter of fabric. And everything is done on traditional uh, wooden looms. And it's really physical. That time frame isn't at all a limitation to Odile. In fact, slowness is at the core of her brand. It's a quality that reflects the arduous and formidable process behind each piece and which should be celebrated rather than hurried. That's why I said that Odile is really is all about slow retail and it's not a marketing thing, it's true. You know, it's uh, When you want to have a bag, what we do is that you can order the bags, but it's by the order. So it takes about a week to get it done. And also what we do is that we add the initial of the guest on the upcycle leather hang tag. I mean, in terms of... Um, Production, yeah, you have to be patient. And also, it's, I mean, that's the whole beauty about it. It's slow retail. It's crafting things by hand. And it's not produced by the million in, a, in a factories. Likewise, there are certain confines that exist to Odile's design process. Limits imposed by the local government themselves to protect the centuries-long tradition of a specific region and its artisans. But that's no limit to Odile's creativity. If I want, for instance, to have a carpet with dots, I can't have it because I have to use only the traditional Portuguese pattern. Same goes for the colors. I really wanted to have maybe like a gold, to have like a tiny line of gold in the cushion covers. And the camera said, no, you can't because it's not Portuguese. So it's, it's really strict. I mean, I can work with like 48 colors, but still, if I want to have a specific colors, this is not possible. I have to stick to their colors and traditional pattern. So that way you can actually, I mean, yeah, you, you keep the same, the craft, you know, this is typical uh, Portuguese. For Odile, 
She's not just making chic beach bags or beautiful cotton dresses with bold prints, although she definitely ticks that box too. Her project is also about keeping these skills alive. The younger generation doesn't want to be located in the middle of nowhere. It's very physical. It takes a lot of time. You're seated all day long, weaving. I mean, one of my plan wishes, I would say, to find like some kind of subsidiary where we could work with this atelier and to get maybe money from the Portuguese government and to train the new generation so that the skills don't die. That's my plan. I'd love to do that. Time now on Confect Corner for Culture Corner, a corner within a corner. With the <laughs> a wonder- meta corner. <laughs> with the wonderful Chiara Mella, who is my brilliant and amazing deputy editor on Confect magazine, which we're currently working on. We took time out of our rather packed schedule upstairs on the editorial floor to go to the theatre last night. Chiara, what did we see? Well, we went to see The Seagull. As many of our listeners will know, a great classic by Chekhov, and we were undaunted by this kind of midweek Chekhov watching. And if anything, we relished it. But I think it was a bit of a, you know, standout moment for us. It was the first time we went to the theatre together for this purpose, and I feel like it will open the doors to plenty more theatre-going evenings for us, because I feel like it's a medium that both you and I are really receptive to. I have to say before we even begin, we really felt like it was an occasion for us to go there. And we spent quite a lot of time talking about the value of going to the theatre as an experience in itself. I mean, I love it. I'm very fickle as a creature in general. I get really passionate about pretty much anything I set my eyes and mind to. So I'm very always surprised by people who are able to dedicate their entire life to a craft because I will go and see something that is amazing and I'll be like, that's what I should have done with my life. (laughs) And then the day after it's pottery and the day after it's, you know, acting and the day after it's whatever. But whenever I go to the theatre, I always get this sense that it's a fantastic human endeavour that is one of the most important things that there are. And I know this might sound a bit grandiloquent and a bit kind of intellectual, but I really think that there is something so beautiful about that shared moment of humanity that is so ancient as a tradition. And you really feel that energy where you're in a room with so many other people all sharing the same experience and just seeing your life reflected on stage by people who are there just then. And it's this magic moment that just lasts for a few hours and then it's gone. I just find it so evocative. And we should say, before we go into the Chekhov review, the actual audience were quite interesting because they were very beautifully dressed, theatrical, sort of sunglasses inside kind of crowd. (laughs) Your usual Chekhov goers, really. (laughs) (laughs) And we were sort of lingering at the bar. The Harold Pinter Theatre is sort of very opulent, 18th century, sort of with yellow velvet swagging and a lot of candelabras, a lot of gilding, which I was loving. And then also packed kind of vertiginous seats. So we kind of looked at a lot of other people looking at the stage, which was fun, and in the great tradition of voyeurism and theatre. But then we saw The Seagull, which was also such an amazing moment for both of us because we hadn't seen it before. I think I claimed to, but then I realised I hadn't halfway through. (laughs) (laughs) Every Chekhov's the same. Come on. But it was a very interesting retelling by Anya Rice, who adapted it, a British playwright, and it felt very modern. 
It really did. I mean, the text had intermissions of clearly modern things that kind of woke you up from what you could have mistaken for the original text. I think the most modern and striking aspect of the production that we went to see yesterday was definitely the staging. So the director is Jamie Lloyd, who has actually tackled other great classics before to much fanfare in this kind of very radical way. He did Cyrano de Bergerac before. And this is another one of those cases. It's very striking because the whole stage, you know, it's obviously a period play, a historical play. The whole stage was just decked in plywood. There was nothing else, just a big box of plywood and a few chairs, plastic chairs, and all of the characters that were on stage were actually on stage for the whole duration of the performance and it was very strange and perhaps a little bit difficult to figure out at first who was supposed to be kind of speaking and present in the scene and who was supposed to be sitting back and you quickly figured out that whenever characters were kind of sitting still or looking a little bit obliviously in the distance or whether they had their chairs turned away, that meant that they weren't really present in the scene whilst the people who were facing frontwards toward the audience and speaking were actually present. And I think all these tricks about staging were actually really relevant given the play we went to see because The Seagull is obviously a great tragedy of unrequited love but it's also very much a play about playwriting and I do love a meta play, I have to say. Play within a play, <laughs> a corner within a corner. But it, it was very interesting. It had all those kind of Chekhovian tropes of longing, loneliness, angst. But all these people were sort of creatives, you know, writers, playwrights, actresses. And because they are indeed those people, and we are writers, we were really relating. I was looking at your face, actually, when the protagonist, Boris Tregoran, was talking about you know, the act of writing and how it sort of seemed to eat into everything he did in his own life and how he couldn't look at a cloud anymore because he'd have to write about it. And then every time he publishes something, he immediately hates it. And it's this wonderful characterization of the ambivalence and self-loathing that so many writers have that sort of runs as a thread through this play. Yes, that was struck really quite close to the bone for me. It was a little bit painful. It was it was much more painful to look at than all the kind of great love tragedy. You know, I found it so much closer to our day-to-day struggles. But I do have to say that in the vein of talking about all the complications of staging and I guess the bringing the artifice of theatre to the forefront of this whole production. One thing that made us both kind of question whether the adaptation was that successful was Jamie Lloyd's choice to put a microphone on all of the actors. I think that you, Sophie, found it perhaps more grating than I did because I kind of bought into the artifice of it and how almost televisual it made the whole experience. But you had kind of a bit of contrasting feelings about it. I just felt that it allowed the actors to sort of underact in a way that was a bit muttery. I couldn't see... I don't know, maybe that is it grandiose and outdated, but I felt like I needed some more physicality and I missed it a little bit. I could feel myself yearning, <laughs> Chekhovian style, for something that had gone. But at the same time, I thought it was very striking and very, very beautiful, beautiful play. Obviously, we've talked about all the merits of the play itself, but it is being very much publicised in London because of the fact that a very famous actress is in it, Emilia Clarke, 
off TV screen fame. And that's very much kind of front of centre of the publicity around the play. But it's very much an ensemble play. And I have to say that for me, the strongest performance comes from Indiri Varma, who actually plays the kind of ageing actress at the centre of the play, which was really extraordinary. What I would say is for all those listeners who might be kind of put off by thinking, oh, this is just another kind of West End debut for a, a big kind of Hollywood actress. It's much more than that. It's actually Chekhov with very good acting and, and mics. <laughs> and humour is funny. Anyway, we've given you a taste <laughs> and we'll probably end up talking about this for many more hours over a glass of wine. Thank you very much for joining me, Chiara Miller, on Confet Corner. And now for this episode's final thought. We turn to writer Alexis Self, who's been enjoying the slower pace of summer. As the streets empty and the traffic dwindles, this is the time to slow down, walk with purpose and let your gaze linger. If you're reading this after the 3rd of July and before the 11th of August, you're in the midst of the dog days of summer. So-called not because of parched canines on city streets, as I quite recently assumed, but due to the presence of Sirius, the fabled dog star in the night sky. This red hypergiant, one of the largest known and most luminous stars in the Milky Way, makes an appearance every year during the height of summer in the Northern Hemisphere. If you're a European or North American urban dweller, its arrival usually coincides with an emptying out of your town. This is a time when, freed from their usual street-level distractions, our eyes might wander upward to the cornicing and gables of the surrounding buildings and beyond. At night, with the traffic flow tempered and light pollution at its lowest, we might even catch a glimpse of the stars. The night sky, especially one augmented by the dog star, is nature's greatest canvas, onto which we can project all existential thought and receive abundant inspiration in return. This is how I feel about the cityscape in summer. Emptied of citizens, Paris, New York, London and Rome become humanity's greatest works of art. Massive, inhabitable sculptures. In The Road to Oxiana, Robert Byron wrote that all towns are the same at dawn. As even Oxford Street can look beautiful in its emptiness, so Venice now seemed less insatiably picturesque. Now, I'd take an empty Venice over Oxford Street any dawn, but my appreciation of London, a city I've lived in all my life, is enhanced when it becomes a quieter, less purposeful place. My favourite thing to do after arriving in a foreign city is to walk aimlessly in the early evening, observing the admixture of built environment and human activity that gives a place its essence. In one's hometown, it is near impossible to walk with no fixed destination, 
or to look at the cityscape objectively. Empty London forces us to reconsider. Shorn of its myriad functions, form becomes primary and moving around it becomes pleasure rather than business. When Parisians flee en masse in July and August, it is supposedly to leave the drudgery of urban life, of the metro, boulot, dodo, commute, work, sleep, behind. But it is also to avoid social ostracism and loneliness. In The Green Ray, director Eric Romer's peen to the French cult of the summer holiday, Delphine is a woman whose failure is demonstrated by the fact that she is spending August in Paris. After dining with people who are barely friends, she seeks redemption, first in Normandy, then Biarritz. In the latter, she finally glimpses hope in the form of a seaside sunset. Now, I see more truth in the urban gloaming, where, as Matthew Spector puts it, in always crashing in the same car, evening arrives like an orange rolling off a table. Summer in the city is full of sudden revelation which creeps up like the lank cat of William Matthews' poem, Morningside Heights, July, who then slinks liquidly around a corner. The heat encourages us to celebrate the cool and rhythm of the night. Freed from the judgment of workaday society, those on the fringes have their time in the streetlight. Erskine Childers' Riddle of the Sands first ignited my interest in the Dog Day City. The narrator, a lowly official in the Foreign Office, wallows in the misfortune of a few weeks doomed to the outer solitude of London in September. While he moaned about low music halls and nefarious characters with whom he wouldn't usually be thrown together, I was beguiled. Ever since then, I've looked forward with adolescent longing to those weeks when the city empties and I know that the dog days have arrived. That was writer Alexis Self. Well, Gillian, I was going to ask you if you prefer to flock away in the summer, but you've already left me in London, so I guess I know the answer. Well, actually, I've left you for work, but I love summer in the city, and I, if I have a choice, I quite like spending it in London. And my dog days of summer, I'm kind of spending by escaping to London Zoo. I've discovered that it's actually quite nice to go there early or catch it at the end of the day and take your coffee and do your calls from the zoo while watching the lions or the tigers or the giraffes or the penguins. So my dog days of summer, I'm spending in the zoo. I'd love to be on the end of one of your Zoom calls where some monkey starts tackling. <laughs> that's sorry. You that's, two can um, join me. You two can join me. It's like my safari. It's my London safari. So you can come too, Sophie. That's a very exotic way to communicate with the world. Marcella, do you enjoy the emptiness of Zurich in summer or do you prefer to escape? No, I love it now. It's beautiful. It's empty. It's the perfect temperature for swimming in the lake and no traffic. I mean, I love it. And But I also go off, I go to Paris 
in summer in August because it's the best time to grab a bike and discover the city. It's not dangerous. It's like a slow motion movie. You can discover the architecture and once are not distracted by shopping or fashion. So a couple of days in Paris in summer, it's adorable. What about you, Sevi? I'm really the opposite. I think having lived in Paris for a few years, I like the stampede, the exodus, the grand vacances. <laughs> I can just getting out of, of the city in the summer and reconvening on the beach is something really wonderful. And if I could do it, you know, full heartedly for the whole of the summer, I actually would. <laughs> and in fact, I'm packing my suitcase very shortly to do exactly that. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for on this episode of Confect Corner. Many thanks. Thanks to Gillian DeBias and Marcella Palak in Zurich for keeping me company once more. The summer issue of Confect magazine is out now. You can find us in all good newsstands and get your copy delivered straight to your front door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. This episode was edited by Christy O'Grady with editing assistance by Emily Sands. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Enjoy your summer. Listener.